0: Hello, and welcome again to another edition of Irreligiosophy, where we have been dodging heresy hunters since January 2009. Oh yes, it is the One True Podcast.
1: Hell yes. (laughs) Kiss my ass, heresy hunters.
0: Bring it. Bring it. I'll I'll burn for
1: my uh, truths. All right. Should we go into... uh, Let's do... We haven't done any reviews.
0: No, no. Any iTunes reviews for a while. We haven't done any reviews... And there is a great one that I think we should cover, and you know exactly which one I'm talking about.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, it's Too Many Jokes, uh, four-star review from dolphin 85 uh, These guys are pretty cool. They're well-informed. They do awesome interviews. I'm starting to get skeptical about this review already.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, it's only got four stars. That should have given you your first thought.
1: I do love jokes and fun just as much as the next guy, but I feel that jokes and sarcasm rule these guys. Just when they're about to make a good point... And I'm focused on hearing it. They toss in a crazy joke. Well,
0: how do you babysit and... a black baby? <laughs> what? How do you babysit a black baby? Oh, God almighty. You lick its lips and you stick it to the wall. <sighs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You were in the middle of something. Please continue.
1: I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> and yes, it's a good joke, but I lose my train of thought. And sometimes they carry on with the joke for so long that I stop caring what the main point was in the first place um so do we actually (laughs) (laughs) you know another genius was criticized by something fairly similar to this i'll play it for you now a good effort oh well decidedly that an excellent effort you have shown us something quite new tonight so then you liked it you you really liked it sire well of course
2: i
0: did it's very good of course now and then just just, just now and then it, it it seemed a touch
1: um what do you mean sire well i mean uh, occasionally it seems to have um oh how shall one say um how shall one say director? too many notes your majesty exactly very well put too many notes i don't understand there are just as many notes majesty as
2: are required neither more nor less But, my dear fellow, there there are, in fact, only so many notes the ear can hear in the course of an evening. This is absurd. My dear young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. It's quality work.
0: And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect. Which few did you have in mind, Majesty?
1: Ah, yes. Too many jokes.
0: Yeah, I I love that we are now comparing ourselves to Mozart. (laughs) Right. Which jokes would you remove? Um well we can't take out the black baby jokes. Those ones are just too good. Uh um, yeah, that
1: actually that joke will lead us right into our uh skunk dick candidates. I nominate Layton.
0: <laughs> I didn't invent the joke, I just repeated it. <laughs>
1: <Come on. laughs> skunk dicks of the Mims Carter Skunk Dicks of the Week. Who do we want to start out with?
0: Uh I think we should start out with, the Vatican makes attempted ordination of women a grave crime.
1: Yes, they, uh, the Vatican today made the attempted ordination of women one of the gravest crimes under church law, putting it in the same category as clerical sex abuse of minors. Uh, which is to say, they <laughs> shuffle people around, allow it to continue, turn a blind it eye to work and... for decades. <laughs>
0: So it's so <laughs> grave that they're just gonna pretend like uh, it's they gonna send, sex abuse, yeah.
1: They're gonna send these priests who ordain females to Af to you know what was it, Africa or uh, yeah, Alaska? Yeah, Alaska, like Alaska. they stuck them in Alaska. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great, guys. Because ordaining a woman is much like abusing a small child. That that makes perfect sense.
1: Absolutely. The Vatican's reclassification of attempted female ordination was part of a revision of a 2001 decree, the main purpose of which was to tighten up the rules on sex abuse by priests in reaction to the scandals that have been sweeping through the church since January. Isn't that amazing?
0: (laughs) So we have a sex scandal, and then we want to step on women.
1: After decades of ignoring clerical sex abuse of minors, finally in 2001, they tighten up the rules, and nine years later in the same category they put, uh, they put attempted uh, ordination ordination of females. coordination of female bishops, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> very very nicely done um if you got all of them together you might get half a brain so and yeah
1: uh, in the same category uh is uh you know if women come to church in pants instead of a dress or uh uh, open their mouths in church for God's sakes.
0: Yeah, we can't have that. All women are destined to listen.
1: Punishment is uh, burning at the
0: stake for these crimes. <laughs> As a well, witch. You, that is very true. This constitutes heresy in my book.
1: Uh, our second skunk dick candidate is uh, the Westboro Baptist Church led by Fred Phelps. Uh, they're <laughs> going to picket the San Diego <laughs> Comic Con.
0: Now. Oh, God. <laughs>
1: Let nerds be nerds, leave our
0: people alone.
1: (laughs) Before we went to the Haunt Convention in Missouri, uh, the greatest pack of nerds collected in one location was the San Diego Comic-Con. I think the Haunt Convention um, destroyed my faith in humanity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Was uh, that due to the woman who had the saggy boobs who dressed up like a lizard, or just the uh, dude that squealed like a little girl wearing the giant costume?
1: It was a whole experience, all four days.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not a normal person to be found anywhere.
1: Uh, well, the Westboro Baptist Church does not like the fact that people are worshiping Superman and Batman. Uh, I quote, If these people would spend even some of the energy that they spend on these comic books reading the Bible, well, no high hopes here. They have turned comic book characters into idols and worship them. They do. Isaiah 2.8. That idiots always quote scripture yeah. Isaiah 2.8 Their land also is full of idols They worship the work of their own hands That which their own fingers have made And verse 9 And the mean man boweth down And the great man humbleth himself Therefore forgive them not Now this is just like the God of the Old Testament Fuck these people <laughs>
0: <laughs> They are not them. doing what I want Why aren't they dressing up like buddy Jesus
1: well, it is time to put away the silly vanities and turn to God like you mean it. The destruction of this nation is imminent. So start calling on Batman and Superman now. See if they can pull you from the mess that they, you have created with all your silly idolatry.
0: Okay, let me point out something. <laughs> the reason why Batman, Superman, and comics are so, I don't know, in, engulfing and in, in entertaining is because... They continue, the storylines continue, and they get better, usually, as they go. When has the Bible continued and gotten better?
1: Unlike the Bible, comic books are just adolescent male power trips, essentially, right? You're all bulged out, ripped, you're totally strong, can't be hurt. The women's Uh, boobs
0: are larger than anything you've ever seen, and yet they have six packs, and yeah.
1: All the women are massively disproportional. Uh, They make (laughs) Barbie look reasonable. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's the the teenage male fantasy, essentially. Um, It doesn't mean they worship Superman and Batman. God, these people. You know, the comic book readers don't have problems just like the Dungeons and Dragons nerds. They don't have problems differentiating fantasy and reality. It's these fucking idiots who are Christians that do.
0: They can't tell the difference when someone's just enjoying some little childish book. And actually worshipping it. I don't see many altars out there where you're sacrificing a chicken to it.
1: You know, um, Superman and Batman. You'll, you'll probably have more success praying to Superman and Batman than you would to God. Or at least equivalent success. Uh, the You know, the, the people... Fred Phelps believes in a God who's a much bigger douchebag than Superman. Batman's a massive douchebag. I will give you that.
0: <laughs> yes. He's
1: a massive dick. That's and he totally kind of whines point. about his parents getting killed... Wine, 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 whine oh woe is me, blah blah blah. Total douchebag. Superman's kind of nice. Superman's
0: uh, a dick. I hate <laughs> Superman. The pontificating that comes out of Superman just irritates the hell out of me. There is no such thing as the perfect man. I'm sorry.
1: Alright, they're both massive douchebags, but the go. the douchebag that Fred Phelps believes in is is a is million times worse, worse. than yeah. Superman or Batman. He's a douchebag that apparently kills american uh soldiers yep. people who are uh, you know fighting for their country and etc cetera, et cetera. because the country happens to tolerate gay people and doesn't fucking kill them on sight
2: <laughs> that's the douchebag
1: that fred
0: phelps believes in uh to believe in the omnipotent it is a great feeling
1: all right our last candidate uh this was leighton's choice Female genital mutilation at Cornell University.
0: Now, it it was my choice because we here at Irreligiosophy talk about masturbation quite a bit. But we usually talk about it from the guy's side and uh, not the female's side. So this story fit quite well.
1: Yeah, it's a pediatric urologist at Cornell who's been operating on little girls with what he judges to be oversized clitorises, Yeah, cutting away clitoral tissues, and then stitching the glands to what remains of the shaft.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is as bad as the mutilation over in the Middle East where they cut the thing off. You are dealing with nerves. You can lose feeling down there. And the funny thing is, is he says that he has figured out a way to do nerve-sparing surgeries, and what he's done by that is instead of cutting the tip, he cuts the shaft. Well, the problem is, is you have, like, uh, uh, Masters and Johnson... Who point out that many women masturbate by rubbing the shafts? So essentially, he's just fucking over these little girls.
1: What parent would, uh, with informed consent, approve of this procedure?
0: I have no idea. Well, my brother's wife probably would, but she's the spawn of hell. So
1: certainly, the child cannot give consent. It's a baby.
0: No, no. So they, the parents they have do be... this up to five years old. Oh, for God's sakes. Yeah. Yeah, this goes up to so, five years old.
1: This is essentially cosmetic surgery. This is not necessary surgery. It's cosmetic surgery. Apparently, the doctor says, hey, I've been checking out your three-year-old's uh, clitoris, and I think it's too big. I'm going to go ahead and operate. You okay? Are you okay with that? Yeah. And the parent says, sure, no problem.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've been looking at my uh, my daughter's clitoris, and I've noticed that it is overly large as compared to her sister's. So,
1: I this, oh God, I uh, I don't know, I'm speechless. I have no idea. Um, yeah, you know, would the equivalent uh, would the equivalent be true where you say, "Hey, look, your son's penis looks like it's down at his ankles." Um, <laughs> you mind if I just shorten that a little bit?
0: We're having trouble rolling it up in his boxers. Come on now. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the hell! Well, if it's down to his ankles, you got to roll it up and stick it somewhere.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. Uh, Cornell, fuck you. Yeah, and fuck Dix Pappas, who's apparently the pediatric urologist.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite the appropriate name there, by the way. Uh, but yeah, yes, yeah, seriously, the ethics committee should be all over this. This is mutilation to children wait for them to get to 18, and then they have the choice from that point.
1: Yeah, seriously, if they think that their own clitoris is uh, too big and want to mutilate it themselves, then, you know, here, here's a scalpel, be my guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's, let's have a vote of all the 18-year-old girls out there, or women, whatever you want to be called, and let's see which one of you wants to go and have this mutilation. I, I, can, I dare say the numbers are going to be very small, if any at all.
1: Uh, well, he's got my vote, Dick's Pappas.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I'm sorry, the Catholic Church is winning mine. I'm sorry. <laughs> you ordain a woman and it's as bad as molesting a small boy? Yeah, that makes perfect yeah, it, sense.
1: It's a pretty bad week for skunk dicks when Fred Phelps is at the bottom of the heap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's very true. Okay, so let's dash that into the computer as fast as we can. And uh, what do you got? Who won? For some reason, Glenn Beck is showing up on my screen. Glenn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that two in a row? He's almost had as many as Mims Carter himself.
0: That, that's pretty impressive. I never thought anybody would reach the level of Mims Carter skunk dickishness. <laughs> but, uh... Well,
1: Glenn, Glenn Beck uh, on his show has been talking about civil rights. Um, we probably ought to just play it for you so you can marvel at this yourself. Yeah.
0: Panthers and the threats causing Congress to pass the civil rights, that's bullcrap. God did it by working through people and inspiring people like Martin Luther King and C.L. Jackson and, yes, white people like Bobby Kennedy and, dare I say it, oh, my gosh, I'm going to set the world on fire with this, Roger Ailes. I think he spent some time
1: the civil rights movement. Roger Ailes, do you know what the, who the hell he is? <laughs>
0: He's somebody over there at the the Fox network. I'm not entirely sure.
1: Like the president of Fox News, I think. I had to to look him up. (laughs) Fuck Roger Ailes?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you you know the great thing about Roger Ailes? How much time did he actually spend fighting for the civil rights?
1: Well, apparently he booked Martin Luther King. That was the extent of his involvement in the civil rights movement. Bravo, bravo. I love love how uh, (laughs) Beck says, and dare I say it? White people.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, lest we forget, white people were also involved. Thank you, Glenn yeah, Beck.
0: thank you, Glenn Beck. Especially because
1: Glenn f- Beck, uh, if you looked in the 1950s and 60s, all of Congress was black people. Passed <laughs> these laws. It's all black people.
0: Well, Before you know, committee. essentially what he's saying is that God was the one who brought in civil rights. Well, that's that's very interesting, uh, Glenn. Considering. Uh, Your church, the LDS Church, didn't allow blacks to have the priesthood until 1978. So if God is leading your church, shouldn't you and uh, your church been at the forefront of civil rights movements?
1: Yeah, apparently God worked on Congress before he worked on the prophet, his fucking prophet, who has yeah. all of the keys of the priesthood, and his prophet, seer, and revelator, and the only person on earth who can do that, but he fucking talks to Congress first.
0: <laughs> About yeah. 20 years before. Then, tw- then waits around 20 years going, well, I, I worked my mojo, well, it's time done. to take a rest. <laughs> yeah, there was another oh, seventh day, God, thanks.
1: Wait, well, hey, there's some more white people i got to talk to. <laughs> <England>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there, there's people more racist than the LDS church. I'll be right back. So
1: Now keep in mind also, uh, Glenn Beck's vision of God. What a fucking asshole. What a lazy asshole. He has to work through a bunch of people, right? Yeah. What happened to the God of the Old and the New Testament where he did shit himself? And Jesus is sitting there changing water into wine. He's fucking walking on water. He's floating up to heaven, raising people from the dead. What the fuck? Elijah raising people from the dead. Moses has a pillar of fucking fire hosing, yeah. holding uh, uh, the Pharaoh back. He's parting the fucking Red Sea. What does God do now? Oh, he just waits until some people come along. Yeah, he, and he works a bunch of black him. people. He fucking <laughs> inspires them is what he God inspires does. inspires
0: people. Yeah. So much for the almighty. I mean, seriously.
1: I want to say, what's the difference between... Glenn Beck's world, where God is inspiring people, and a world in which no fucking God exists at all.
0: No difference. <laughs> yeah, where people come up with their own morals on their own grounds. Hmm, Thank what is God the difference? God was there to whisper
1: in Martin Luther King's ear, because otherwise he wouldn't have done anything. Yeah. He would have just sat on his ass throughout the entire 50s and 60s, not caring about the plight of his people.
0: Yeah, it's all because God was the one that was poking him in the back saying, hey, psst. By the way, your people are oppressed, yeah, just in case you didn't notice.
1: Thank God for the president of Fox News, without whom we would not have civil rights today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's very important that he booked that show, so, yes. It Uh, had nothing to do with the ratings that probably went through the roof at booking that show.
1: Also, uh, Glenn Beck has this to say about uh, Jews and Jesus. We've never heard this refrain before.
0: Yeah. Jesus conquered death He wasn't victimized He chose to give his life He did have a choice
1: If he was a victim And this theology was true Then then Jesus would have come back from the dead And made the Jews pay for what they did That's an abomination Made the Jews pay for what they did uh, Beck Jesus was a Jew, you fucking idiot.
0: (laughs) Well, he needed to make his own people pay for what they did to Jesus. That makes perfect sense.
1: Um, Jesus is this nice, meek, kind person who's apparently telling everyone else to turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Comes back from the dead and fucking kicks their asses.
0: (laughs) That's because he's so pissed off because uh, depending on the religion, Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus already knew what was going to happen to him, and yet it still pisses him off when it does happen.
1: Oh, God. You know, Mel Gibson goes on an anti-Jewish rant in 2006, catches all kind of hell for it. For some reason, it's not – you've come to expect this really from Glenn Beck. Yeah,
0: Glenn Beck is just the nation's idiot. I mean, who needs a village idiot? We have Glenn Beck to hold up on a pillar.
1: Yeah. Every time I listen to this guy, he just keeps getting stupider and stupider. <clears throat> All right, uh, let's 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 move on. Uh,
0: actually, I would like to bring up uh, an email that came through. Uh, uh, th- this came through a few weeks ago. We just haven't had time to get to it. And it actually comes from I don't know if to call her Janie or Jenny or Janae, whatever. But basically, she points out that she's worked through iridiology. She she really enjoys the banter, so on and so forth. But it's her second paragraph that really usually.
1: Usually when we get those emails, the next sentence is, here's what I hate about you, dicks.
0: <laughs> here's what's wrong with you little dicks. So, I love
1: you guys. You guys are awesome. You have fantastic, best podcast ever. And yeah.
0: then a massive, but here's why you're dicks. Yeah. Now, now, just, just to just prove our up. point, this is what comes before the second paragraph. It's a pleasure to be invited into a couple's longstanding love affair or friendship, and it is part of what makes the podcast work. However, I must say that I cringe during episodes with guests where Leighton in particular seems completely unable to avoid talking about sex in rather explicit terms. I can hear well, your guess okay. If
1: it if it makes you feel better, I'm uncomfortable at that too. I cringe as well, right with you. Um <laughs> The fuck? Are you masturbating right now? Uh,
0: well, you know, sometimes when uh, when other people talk about sex, it.
2: Uh, oh my God! Oh, oh. Hold on. Oh,
0: there's the old face. Ah, hold on. Ah, the tip's still sensitive. Okay, I'm done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am cringing right now,
0: Janae. Well, I feel for you. I was cringing a minute ago, but that was for completely different reasons.
1: <laughs> well, there must have been a purpose to this email.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, she she said that if we, we didn't talk about sex or my penis for the next five episodes, that she would buy us a six-pack. <laughs> But, um, could could we have That's a, a pretty mulligan? sure bet,
1: Janae? You got to give us some sort of chance of reaching the six pack.
0: <laughs> We're talking five episodes here. Can we get like five mulligans? Just you know, loosely yeah. thrown out there. Maybe
1: one episode. Maybe one episode. We go without talking about Leighton's penis. Yeah. I doubt it, but at least you give us a fighting chance.
0: <laughs> this is like God setting us up to lose. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, God. Sorry, Janae. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But thanks for the yeah. offer.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, my penis is just far too fascinating for even me. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the pod. Please, the, the- for the yeah. love of God, let's move on. I've got to clean off the spray.
1: Let's move on to the meat of the podcast, which <laughs> amazingly does not have to do with Leighton's penis.
0: Yes, because we can't find... Uh, and we can't find my penis, so we can't necessarily declare it meat at this point.
1: So this podcast is on early Christian heresies and uh, the um, kind of uh, alterations of scripture that have gone on uh, because of these heresies. Remember that um, Kent Hovind and and a lot of these fundamentalist Christians believe, uh, I think they, they don't know it, but they're taking from Eusebius, his idea that there was one Christianity and it, it, by sheer coincidence, happens to be the Christianity these people believe in. <laughs>
0: yeah. What a surprise. Always, There's one true church, and we're in it.
1: It's always a Christianity flowing forth from the person you're talking to. That Christianity was corrupted over time, and, and there were uh, offshoots into different heresies, right? Yeah. Uh, the truth is a lot more complex. Uh, the truth is that there were um, arguments going on back and forth between various groups of Christians uh, that that didn't really get settled until about the 4th century. Uh, and that was, was settled uh, kind of more by force than <laughs> anything
0: else. <laughs> yeah, actively stomping on the settlement yeah. is what happened. That's pretty...
1: It's more effective than uh, philosophy, reason, and, and simply debating your opponents.
0: Yeah, because, uh, well, you know, you might grow intellectually if you discuss things philosophically.
1: <laughs> yeah, you risk changing your mind. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Unlike Kent Hovind, uh, we're actually going to look at these uh, early Christian heresies and see what they were talking about, why they were talking about it, and and how uh, they came to to kind of get crushed.
0: (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is is most people they they forget that when Christianity was a a budding religion, it had so many different thoughts going through it that uh, they were having difficulty controlling it, pointing it down to one single church. And, of course, that's where the Council of Nicaea comes into play, and, and, you know, that's where heresies came from, is the Council of Nicaea started it all.
1: Officially. Officially. There were heresies before the Council of Nicaea, but they weren't – if you don't have the backing of Constantine or the Roman Empire, you really can't do much about the heresies other than argue. Yeah, point your finger and scream heretic
0: or something. Yeah,
1: Right. Yeah. But it really came down to the fourth century with the backing of the Roman Church, where uh, the heresy hunters really took off. Yeah, and that the um, analogy really is—you remember our uh, podcast on the comics
0: scare of the 1950s? (laughs) Yes, yes, I do. In fact, and I I remember a lot of people asking why the hell we did that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was purely for this uh, podcast benefit. Yeah, before that was on your mind.
0: Think about all of the different types
1: of comics there were, right? You had romances, Western, science fiction, horror comics, and superheroes. You had Archie comics, you know, and now after the 1950s, you have a bottleneck. What happened after the 1950s? You have superhero comics and Archie, and that's essentially it <laughs> to this day.
0: Yeah, yeah, no more what horror happened? comics are being produced. Why the fuck not? I love horror.
1: Yeah, that's the the tragedy of the comics code. It essentially squished everything into just apparently superheroes and and Archie for the girls. Superheroes for the guys and Archie for the girls. (laughs) That's essentially it. it, The the situation is very similar in Christianity. Early Christianity, you have Marcionites, Ebionites, Gnostics, separationists. Uh, You've got um, tons of different types of Christianities floating around there. You get up to the Council of Nicaea, and then you start start, uh, defining Christianity, making people adhere to different creeds, uh, and there's a bottleneck. You stamp out all the rest of the Christianities, and essentially you have one, all the way pretty much until the Reformation.
0: Yeah, it it, it basically comes down to the fact—I mean, many people wonder, why did the uh, Catholicism and that branch of Christianity really take off? It was because that was the one that was accepted by the strongest people, and then they went out and kicked everybody else's ass.
1: Yeah, the question is, how did these proto-Orthodox people win out over all the rest of them? Well, the proto-Orthodox happened to be the church in Rome, right? Yep. So you have the wealthiest, the, the, the most educated, typically, and the, uh, the most influential. So these people would say, uh, if they want a bishop installed— in a church who clearly believes the same way they do, they would uh, say, Hey, if you allow this bishop to be your bishop, then uh, we'll go ahead and donate a bunch of money to your church. Yeah. Keep in mind also that the Roman church had the benefit of being inside Rome and it had access to all the organizational structure and hierarchy and administrative expertise of the Roman Empire just by being surrounded by it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's really no. Uh, mystery as to how these guys won.
0: No, um, no, especially questions. considering the Christians in large during that era were the uneducated poor, because this is the type of religion that really fed into their desires. It was the hope to get greater things than what they actually had.
1: Right, and I think a lot of these arguments um, led directly to the uh, creation and adoption of a, a fixed canon in Christianity. You see that, in hindsight, you see the benefit of the canon... Because you have these books that you've selected that agree with your beliefs, and anything outside of the canon, immediately you can say, I don't care about this. That's not in the canon. It's clearly false. It's not in the canon. I don't have to defend
0: it. I don't have to talk about it. It's not in the canon. What is not of God is of the devil.
1: It might surprise you to know um, what year was the New Testament in its current form – we have 27 books in the New Testament – what year did the first documented – list up here of our New Testament that had only 27 books in it and our 27 books. Do you know the year?
0: That's got to be after the, uh, the Council of Nicaea. I would guess somewhere yeah, about, in the 400s.
1: About 40 years after the Council of Nicaea, it was 367
0: wow. of the common air. You know that actually makes sense. Uh, I'll actually get into that later. But in three eighty is when uh, when the church was given power with a particular document. So it would actually make sense that they would have to get out the canon before they could start punishing for it. So yeah, that makes sense. Well,
1: Athanasius, bishop of Alexandria, in three sixty seven was writing a letter, his pastoral epistle to all of his little churches, in which he lists for the first time that first documented time our New Testament. Before that, no one that we know of ever suggested it, um, and the actual canon wasn't finalized. Any guess on when the finalization of the canon occurred?
0: That I don't know.
1: Council of Trent, 1563.
0: Oh, wait. I remember reading about that.
1: Yeah. So um, now the, the canon had probably been firmed uh, uh, probably by the 4th or the 5th century, uh, and they were just ratifying it in 1563, but that was when it, it actually was declared over. <laughs> so remember, at least for the first three, four centuries after Christ, this stuff is up in, uh, up in the air. Uh, yeah. The first person ever to declare a canon for Christianity was Marcion. Marcion was born in uh, 110 of the common era uh, to the bishop of Sinope at Pontus. He was active around the 130s, 140s. There's a rumor <laughs> that he was kicked out of the church at, at Sinope by his father for spreading heretical views. <laughs> <laughs> he was really wealthy, he really wealthy guy. So what does he do? He goes to Rome in the
0: 130s, 140s,
1: makes a large donation to the church in Rome to get himself in into the their good graces. Yeah, once again,
0: it, it's it's always with religion. When it comes down to religion, people will believe in money before they'll believe in God.
1: Absolutely. He spends 5 years teaching his his interpretations of Christian doctrine. Uh, the, he becomes subject to investigation and condemnation as a heretic in uh, 144. Uh, so, what are what are first of all what are his beliefs? He believed that the Apostle Paul was really the only real apostle. He taught the true Christianity. Keep in mind, even according to Paul himself, he, he didn't know Jesus. <laughs>
2: he, <laughs> Never. He just, met this him. sort of
1: magically appeared to Paul.
0: Yeah, magically appeared. Well. There's a couple different versions. There's uh, He traveled to the town, learned, so on and so forth, or was taught through angelic teaching. So,
1: Well, he traveled to the town and learned, but from Peter and the, or Cephas and the Twelve, right? Well, of course. He learned directly from
0: Jesus. Well, no, of course um,
1: not. So he, he never personally knew Jesus, but apparently Jesus appeared to him is what he says. He had a vision of Jesus. Um, so he, on the face of it, would be the apostle least likely to know what Jesus really said. Uh, but uh, anyway, he 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 really likes Paul. Now Paul says that a right standing before God doesn't have anything to do with the Jewish law, right? It's your faith in Jesus, really, that does it. Um, Marcion uh, took that to mean that the Jewish law was completely separate from Jesus, and the Jewish law was from a different God. So the Old Testament God was kind of this evil God who created the world, and since the material world was clearly evil. So was the Jewish God. Martian <laughs> <laughs> doesn't like the Jewish God. The Jewish God creates the world and puts this re- ridiculous uh, idea, this, this law, that no one can possibly um, adhere to. Yeah. And since he was uh, apparently this infinitely powerful God, um, any sin against this God was punishable by death. It seems completely unfair, right? So uh, what Jesus did, uh, did was he came down to this world as a, as a separate god, and he was, his role was to save you from the Jewish god, right?
0: Yeah, that was kind of the point, um, is he was supposed to fulfill it and save you from the hardships of actually paying attention to the law. Right.
1: So his idea was that Jesus wasn't human at all. Jesus was fully divine. He only appeared to be human. We'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about docetism, the docetic heresy. So the Old Testament god was an evil god. Uh Marcion actually wrote something called the Antitheses um, to this effect, saying that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, right? Incredibly different. He so said the Old Testament God is one of vengeance and wrath, and the New Testament God is one of mercy and love. And this is pretty clear if you read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament right afterwards, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's because God's an asshole in the Old Testament, and he likes to shuffle it under the rug in the New Testament.
1: Right. He, he's slightly less of an asshole in the New Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, he does stuff like, hey, go into the promised land. And they go, uh, well, there are people in there already. Um, God says, I don't care. Kill them men, women, children, (laughs) and their
0: animals. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget their animals. Wait, wait. Okay, you can spare the virgins.
1: (laughs) But only if you specifically bring them and say, you know, you're sorry, but I'm still pissed off at it. (laughs) Um, But the New Testament, God's like, oh, pray for your enemies. You know, turn the other cheek, blah, blah, blah. Clearly two different gods.
0: And give me um, some damn fruit.
1: I don't want fruit. I want a blood sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what he wants. Yeah. Um, so uh, two obvious problems uh, pop up with this theology. Um, you know, it's, a little, it's not internally consistent. Um, the problem is if Jesus was completely uh, divine – he couldn't die, right? Yeah, just he just change He'd
0: just stand up there, and people would just kind of peg him with spears all day, and he'd just be like, eh.
1: So if Jesus didn't actually die, how did he pay the penalty of death? <laughs> <laughs> and the second problem, and this is my problem always when I hear people say the wages of sin is death, right? Yeah. Uh, and Jesus died to purchase our, our, our release from this, blah, blah, blah. Well, I got news for you people. Everyone dies, so everyone pays the penalty. So I might as well (laughs) sin my entire entire fucking life, because I'm going to die at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll pay the penalty.
0: Yeah, why is it we're all not being twinkled if we don't need to pay the penalty?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're saved by Christ. Why don't we just float off into heaven
0: like (laughs) he did? It's like, oh, it's my time. (laughs) See, I'm twinkling. God's taking me.
1: (laughs) Oh, Lord. All right, so Marcion puts forth this canon, because clearly... A lot of the stuff floating around does not support Marcion. So he, he says, screw everything except for ten letters of Paul. Interestingly enough, we have um, 13 in our New Testament. Um, he takes all of our New Testament letters of Paul with the exception of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the so-called pastoral epistles, which are nearly universally declared by scholars as Four forgeries. Six. Yeah. So he doesn't have those three in his uh, canon. And uh, since Paul refers to his gospel, he uh, takes Luke. Remember, Luke's a physician-traveling companion of Paul. Of course. So he takes, takes Luke and ten letters of Paul. Now, all this stuff was edited by Marcion to remove any reference to the Old Testament God as being a good, nice person. <laughs> so <laughs> Tertullian, who's the second-century um, uh, church father, proto-Orthodox, he said that Marcion interpreted Scripture with a pen knife. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that makes sense. But then, so it's the same for anybody of any religious fervor. They take a look at what they like, uh, what fits into their course. little box. Of course. And, and so, I mean, Tertullian had no room to speak in my
2: mind.
1: And of course, you know, the Proto-Orthodox people later came up with their own version of the canon. And so they had reasons for excluding other stuff. And why did they have it? They didn't go... And search all the provenance of these documents, trace it back all the way back to Jesus, they included the pastoral epistles, they included uh, second Peter, which is clearly a forgery done, written by Peter. Um, they included a bunch of other stuff that that are clearly pseudopigrapher or false writings or uh, forgeries is the um, unkind word for it, uh, and their reasons were because they didn 't agree with their doctrine they 're no different than Marcion no. at all
0: no, not in the least. Um,
1: Tertullian didn't like the um, apparentness of the doctrine, right? Because if, if Jesus was only apparently human, then he only apparently died, and he only apparently redeemed people. <laughs> and didn't really. It's <laughs> um, yeah, kind of
0: difficult to prove something that's just apparent and not just a, a pure fact.
1: Yeah. Um, Irenaeus wrote uh, – now, Tertullian wrote five books called Against Marcion. He really didn't like Marcion. Irenaeus wrote uh, Against Heresies, which he included Marcion in. And uh, said that Marcin was wrong to limit the Gospels, and everyone else who limited the Gospels to less than four or accepted more than four Gospels was wrong. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you his reasoning here verbatim. Are you ready for this? I am ready. It is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For, since there are four zones in the world in which we live, and four principal winds, and the pillar and ground of the church is the Gospel, it is fitting that she should have four pillars.
0: Oh, mother of christ that you're that's your <laughs> thinking
1: um, that um that's technically a non secular right it does not follow but more colloquial term is he's fucking crazy
0: yeah, yeah he's completely nuts. this is just like in mormonism it's, when they take a look at their little book of abraham and see, say see he had the four canoptic jars there uh, he got that right this is um this is called the what the fuck fallacy what the <laughs> fuck is he talking about four pillars
1: four zones Therefore, four gospels, ironclad. Uh,
0: I'd like to read up more on the "what the fuck" philosophy. Could you point <laughs> me to the proper books? I mean, seriously. We'll
1: we'll do that when we uh, discuss fallacies.
0: Uh, when we'll discuss we when we fallacy. discuss the "kiss my ass" fallacy and the "what the fuck" fallacies. So, yeah.
1: All right. So that Marcion clearly is a a docetist. Um, he subscribes to the docetic heresy, which is that Christ is fully divine, right? Yeah, no real to...
0: human body, not a real human being. He was divine.
1: Yeah, so um, this comes from the Greek – and I'm going to slaughter this. Um, sorry, our Greek audience. Uh, dokeo, which um, means appearance, I believe.
0: Yeah, To seem, um, actually, I believe is the proper term.
1: So uh, there have been some anti-docetic changes in the text. Remember, these guys are arguing back and forth. And so they wanted – they have their little gospels. People are, are um, copying these things, these scribes. In the first several centuries, they're not professional scribes. They don't really care that it's accurate. They just care that it says what they want it to say. Yeah. So the first um, change in the text that appears to be anti-Docetic uh, comes in Luke 22, 43 through 44. This is the sequence where Luke is uh, praying, and he's sweating great drops of blood. Uh, I'll just read it to you. Sure. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Interestingly enough, our earliest manuscripts generally do not include these verses.
0: Well, there's no surprise about that. It's just stupid. All of a sudden you've got a man who's sweating, and then all of a sudden he's sweating blood. I mean, that's just stupid. <laughs> it's well, retarded. it's
1: interesting that this, you hear about this all the time. He suffered so much that he bled from every pore. How many times did you hear that?
0: Well, see, I I believe in an earlier podcast, I pointed out that when I was being uh, raised through the church, there was a teacher that I had who pointed out that uh, in surgery, if someone is in so much pain, they will actually bleed one drop of blood out of a single pore. And it's just excruciating. And then he would stand there and say, so how much worse was it for Jesus who sweat blood out of every pore? Oh, God.
1: You know, um, (laughs) they did just accept this stuff without questioning it. Now, um, another interesting point uh, to make here is that, have you ever heard of chiasmus? No,
0: I haven't, actually.
1: You'll hear it often in the discussion of proofs of the Book of Mormon. That Joseph Smith didn't know about chiasmus, and yet there's a lot of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Chiasmus is um, an ancient Hebrew um, literary device where it, it kind of makes an X structure right? where you go. The first line is repeated uh, like five verses down. Second line is repeated four verses down. Third line – you know, yeah. uh, it's mirrored, and it comes up to the X of the chiasmus, and, and that one stands breaks at the back center the of, of, the of beginning. it. Yeah, yeah actually
0: the I have heard about this before.
1: Um, You know, it's clearly open to interpretation. A lot of the so-called proofs of the Book of Mormon with chiasmus um, are just this idiot interpreting chiasmus in a structure that that clearly doesn't have it. Um, It's just wishful thinking. But there is this chiastic structure in Luke. Um, Remember, in this scene, he tells the disciples to pray lest they enter into temptation. He leaves them. He kneels to pray. He prays. He rises goes back to the disciples, tells them to pray lest they enter into temptation. Right. So that's the chiastic structure yeah. without the sweating drops of blood. If you, you enter the sweating drops of blood, the focus instead of being on the prayer is on the sweating drops of blood and the suffering. <laughs> um, so it throws the chiastic structure completely off um, because he doesn't pray twice. You, you screw up the chiastic structure completely. Also, remember the rest of Luke's portrayal. Jesus in Luke is calm, he's dispassionate, he's totally in control. Mark, one of Luke's sources, has a a Jesus that gets angry sometimes, and sometimes he's out of control. In Mark 14.33, Jesus began to be distressed and agitated. Luke removes that. In Mark 14.35, Jesus falls to the ground in anguish. In Luke, he has them kneel. In Mark, Jesus asks God three times of the cup be removed from him. In Luke, he only does it once. And uh, he adds in that one time, if it be your will, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's totally in control. Luke has Jesus forgive the Romans as they're nailing him to the cross. And instead of in Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember in our last podcast, uh, you have. Uh, Jesus instead saying, Father, into your hands, into I, your commend hands my I commend
0: my spirit. And, of course, everybody knows the reason why he's doing it is uh, they're looking for a more powerful being that they can all stand behind. I mean, we got these pastors of today saying, hey, don't worship these superheroes. And yet you got the same goddamn thing happening in Luke. They're taking this man who writhes in pain and all of a sudden he's all above it. He's powerful. He can withstand it. Right. It's the same sort getting... of hero worship.
1: Right. You're getting farther and farther away from Mark's very human Jesus to uh, the end of it is John, who's like nearly completely divine. Um, But, you know, why? Why in in uh, Luke, where you have this entire portrayal of Jesus, who's completely undisturbed by anything, even crucifixion? He's not suffering. He's like talking to the guys next to him as this intelligent conversation with the thief next to him. (laughs) as he's supposedly
0: writhing in pain. Yeah. Yeah. He's hung Um, up there and he's like, hey. So how uh, how are you doing? Uh what brought you here? Yeah. So so why would this pop up
1: in Luke? And the answer is it wasn't there. No. Uh it was added It's a scribal addition and the the answer why would they add it? Because uh it because he really suffered. He really bled, right? It, it appears otherwise that this Luke, this Jesus in Luke didn't really suffer. Yeah.
2: right? It appears like
0: docetism at, at this point, which is why they right. added the blood. They needed to so prove that it. he was human.
1: Another change comes in Luke 22, 17-19, which reads, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God arrives. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You remember that from every Mormon sacrament ever?
0: Yes, every single goddamn
1: one. The oldest manuscripts we have end differently. The final sentence isn't, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. The oldest manuscripts have, this is my body, but behold, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me at the table.
2: Yeah,
0: which is, it's it's kind of interesting to uh, to realize that Joseph Smith took this out of the Bible and it is said every single Sunday over the sacrament without even realizing that further down the road, people are going to look back and scholarly realize that, hey, this isn't even what it says in its entirety. You are taking it completely out of context.
1: Yeah, um, you can see that the scribes swiped it probably from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25, which is very similar, but does have the uh, do this in remembrance of me. They probably stuck that in there. Um, again, this is the only place in Luke or Acts, remember Luke wrote both of them, … where Jesus' death is said to be for the salvation of others. Luke, if you read him, Luke and Acts by themselves, um, Luke doesn't have Jesus' salvation as a ransom like in Mark for the, the sins of others. Um, when Mark says this, Luke changes it. Uh, compare Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. With Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost… He removed that portion where, it's, where Mark said he's come as a ransom. So in, in Luke, really in Luke, if you read it by itself, Jesus' death makes you feel guilty inside and turn to repentance to God. <laughs> that's, that's how it saves you, right? Yeah, It makes you look inside yourself and say, oh my God, this is horrible. I, I need to repent. That's Luke's portrayal of Jesus' death. This was added in by later people saying, look, I'm going to harmonize this with 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 25 saying that this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It yeah. wasn't in the original text.
0: Well, see, I mean, this goes along the same lines of what everybody receives when they go to church. They instantly show videos or tell you the courageous story of Jesus' pain and ultimate death, so you feel bad. It's all guilt, is all it ever is.
1: Yeah, right. So let's move on to the uh, adoptionist heresy. This is where um, Jesus is fully human, right? Yeah. So it stands against the Marcionite dose of this heresy. Well,
0: It stands Jesus against is... the entire idea of God coming down and impregnating Mary, because Jesus was a human being, and then he's adopted right. by God when he's born.
1: Right. Jesus is fully human. He's really righteous. And then um, he lives this righteous life. He obeys God better than anybody else. And God chooses him, typically at his baptism, to be his son. Yeah. right? And there, there's precedent for this in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, similar language when David, I think, was uh, crowned king. You know, the, and I think subsequently all the kings went through this kind of son of God um, adoptionist language when they were coronated.
0: Well, of course. Because, I mean, even Alexander the Great sought out the oracle so he could be, uh, have the oracle tell him, hey, You have a father who is a god. I mean, this is just a common theme throughout all of history. And I mean, of course, with adoptionism, you have God either accepting him at conception or accepting him when he was baptized by John the Baptist. It's the same thing. It's Jesus seeking out for a godlike father.
1: The analogy for Alexander would be that not he's the son of Horus because um, Horus had sex with his mother. (laughs) It would be that Horus went through the adoption papers and adopted him. To be here, so. <laughs>
0: well, I thought that was kind of the point of bringing it up. <laughs> uh,
1: Ebionites are the um, most famous group uh, that, had, that were adoptionists. They, they were probably named that because the Hebrew word for poor is Ebion. Eusebius, um, being the moron that he was, thought that it was because it was founded by a man named <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it just goes to prove that even back then people liked to jump to conclusions which were simple.
1: I mean, it was true for the Marcionites. That's why they're called Marcionites. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, the Ebionites were a group of early Christians who apparently gave up everything and, and took a vow of poverty um, because they took Jesus' um, love thy neighbor as thyself uh, and, you know, give all your stuff away pretty literally. Yeah. Um, unlike, say, Glenn Beck, for example. By the way, Glenn Beck doesn't love his neighbors as himself, because if he did, he wouldn't be rich. Yeah. If he loved his neighbors as himself, he'd give his money to his neighbor.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, he's dead, he's a fucking dick. We should ask Glenn Beck how much he's putting in his little fast offerings jar and sending over he the
1: He should be giving everything to his neighbor if he loved them as himself. Anyway, the Ebenites actually did that. They, they were strict monotheists, therefore Jesus could not be God. There was one God, Yahweh. Jesus couldn't be him. Yeah. Uh, they did not accept the idea of the virgin birth. And, and as a matter of fact, I wonder if the virgin birth story was uh, concocted in order to refute the Ebionites.
0: Well, it could very well have been because, uh, I mean, you have these people sitting here, and they're trying to figure out Jesus's lineage. How does he fit into the whole thing? And then all of a sudden you have this virgin birth popping up. and this. Well, you is-
1: remember... There's evidence, as we went over in a previous podcast, about did Jesus exist? There's evidence in Luke that uh, the virgin birth story in Luke was a clumsy addition, uh, that it wasn't there originally. Yeah. The Ebionites seem to have a gospel uh, that's very similar to Matthew, but it's missing the first two chapters, which uh, narrate the virgin birth. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, we've already proven that Christianity as a whole they were constantly cobbling together whatever they could fit to make it seem like what they wanted.
1: Right. So the Ebionites were a group of Judaizing Christians. They believed that Jesus was a Jew, uh, unlike, you know, arguing with Glenn Beck, who d- believes that Jesus apparently wasn't a Jew. Yeah, well, because um, the Jews <coughs> killed Jesus, so... <laughs> so they believed that, that to follow the Jewish Jesus, one had to follow the Jewish law and the Jewish God. Um, they, they actually were likely the earliest followers of Christianity. Um, and ironically, they were labeled heretics because they refused to change at the time. <laughs> Remember, there's, there's evidence of this in the New Testament where Paul is arguing with Peter about whether people should be circumcised or not. Peter thinks they should. Paul thinks they shouldn't.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so clearly, Peter was an Ebionite
0: <laughs> Heretic. <laughs> but you, you have this dichotomy where even in their own canon, they are arguing over uh, what is what and even then, they're not sitting there and pointing, well, he's the heretic. No, he is. That sort of thing. It, it's only outside of the canon where they're looking around and going, well, no one should ever have differing opinions about this shit.
1: Right. When it's clear, even within their own canon, people are arguing. Yeah. So the question is, did did they change the text? Uh, and the answer is yes, probably so. Yeah. In First um, Timothy 3.16... It says uh, God was made manifest in the flesh. Right? They're talking about Christ, and it said God was made manifest in the flesh. Now, in the Codex Alexandrinus, 5th century manuscript, one of the best manuscripts we have, it changes the word God to who. Now, in the Greek, these are only off by one letter. It's uh, an omicron for a theta. It looks very, very similar. One of them is like, looks like an O with a little H in the middle, and the other one is just an O. Uh, But the insertion of that, the change of that letter, changes the whole meaning of the passage. Right? It's now Christ who is manifest, not God, and that seems clearly uh, mark at the uh, the adoptionists. God was made manifest in the flesh, not Christ. Christ was God.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, just, it, just adopt them. It, it comes down to the fact that they were just trying to refute all these heresies that were popping up all around them, all these differing yeah. views. And so you just add to your canon to refute them and say, hey, look, it's in the canon. You can't fight it.
1: That one could have been an innocent mistake, um, but it's an innocent, innocent mistake that really helps them against the adoption. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seems the innocent mistake just popped up right at the right time for this sort of thinking.
1: Again in Luke, Luke 233. It says – now this is – you remember this story where uh, Jesus was in the temple. He's 12 years old.
0: Oh, God, Uh, the preaching and everybody found him to be so wise. The early manuscripts
1: read, his father and mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Current King James Version translates to, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. (laughs) 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 Because clearly Jesus had a virgin birth so his father is God. Yeah. So they changed that to Joseph. Uh, later, when the parents, a couple of verses later, the parents leave Jesus behind, right, like we've all done. Oh my God, we left the Son of God. Yeah, let's see. Uh, Supposedly,
0: we've only got one son, and uh, well, we're forgetting well, Didymus Thomas well, Jude. Yeah, well, he's 12, but he's even 12. still. Well,
1: they may have a bunch of other kids. And, you know, if you believe the Catholics, Joseph is really old, and you brought a bunch of stepchildren with him.
2: Yeah. So apparently,
1: you know, yeah, they're going, Um, yeah, Jude, Joseph, we got all these other people. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, let, let me, let me point me. out something. I came from a family of 19. We never left anybody behind. My parents never forgot one of us. They did stick us in a trunk to ride home a few times, but they never forgot us.
1: I think that's pretty unusual and probably brought on by the fact that you did have 19 children. I was left in a gas station. I'm sure one of my uh, other brothers and sisters w- were left in gas stations or stores. I think it happens pretty commonly.
0: Wow, that's kind of funny because I-, I thought those stories just either happened because the parents were pissed or they just didn't like their children. Yeah, growing up, not a single one of us was ever left behind.
1: Well, you have 19 kids. you got to have a system of knowing, right? Yeah. Your system of knowing with, you know, five kids is does it look like we have the right crowd? Yeah, okay, good. The system of nineteen, you gotta count those. Yeah, kids.
0: you you actually yeah, we, we did get counted every time we got into yep. the car. And then even after counted, they would say, Does anybody see anybody that's missing? And of course, if someone was missing, you would try to be quiet until they were discovered, hoping that they'd
2: get left behind. <laughs> <so>. <laughs>
1: anyway, a couple verses later, when they, you know, leave Jesus behind, it says, you know, uh originally His parents did not know about it. This was changed to Joseph and his mother did not know about it. You know, it can't be his parents because you don't have God and Mary sitting there worrying about where Jesus is.
0: Yeah, it's got to be Joseph and the mother.
1: Yeah. When they they return, Mary finds him after three days and says, Your father and I have been looking for you. And this was shortened to. We have been looking for it. you. Know? <laughs> Clearly, three different um, changes. So, some a scribe, this is off, this, this is definite. A scribe is actually going through there and changing each of the three in exactly the same way. This was not an accident.
0: Well, of course he is. And, and it, there's no way around it. You can't make that many mistakes over and over again.
1: Yeah. Um, a, a third example is uh, the baptism, Mark one eleven, Luke 3.23. God's voice says, we went over this last time, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Last time, I remember there were alternate manuscripts. In one early Greek manuscript and several Latin ones, uh, the voice actually says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, so the question is, which of these came first, right? Was it changed from you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased to today I have begotten you
0: or vice versa? Well, it's well, got to be changed against the today I've begotten you, because if he's just barely begotten in him, he hasn't had the virgin birth.
1: That today I've begotten you supports the adoptionist, right? Now you are my son. Today, yeah. you at the baptism, you are my son. Yeah. Most manuscripts, early and otherwise, have in whom I'm well pleased. But a lot of the early church fathers quoted this verse, and in nearly every instance, they quote, Today I have begotten you. So apparently, in the earliest manuscripts we have, that, 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 that have now disappeared, the earliest manuscripts there were, the vast majority of them said, Today I have begotten you. After the adoptionist heresies were recognized and attempted to root out, now nearly every manuscript says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah,
0: what a goddamn surprise. Let's, let's, so much for the fact that this is supposedly what really happened why don't we change it to support our views and this is something that i have never quite understood when you get people in authority like this and they start shifting these things does that mean they don't believe enough in the religion to allow it to stand on its face or is it that they're just so well dumb that they have to figure that they can guide the masses by changing things little by little so they can guide them to the truth now, personally, it's been th- remarkably
1: successful. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're dumb. They're doing the pragmatic thing. But what I would say is they're clearly liars. Yeah. Um, the truth is not as important to them. So the early manuscripts, this idea that Kent Hovind has that scribes and priests were checking backwards and forwards to make yeah. sure that Full everything fucking
0: was shit.
1: as it was and everything was copied correctly. Um, No, that's not as important. The truth is not as important to these people as winning the argument. Yeah, That's what's important. That that the manuscript says what I want it to say, that's more important. And the more you learn about this, the less confidence you have that the New Testament we have today is the actual New Testament as it was written, the actual documents as they were written the first time.
0: And see, and that's, what's, that's what really pissed me off about religion. I mean, once I kind of fell away, the thing that really pissed me off about religion is ever since I was a small child and could be taught, I was always taught that this is the truth. It is the truth and it will stand on its own legs. And then all of a sudden I find out that those in the higher up authorities decide what is truth. And that piss me off to no end because if you're going to tell me the truth tell me the goddamn truth don't sit there and buttercoat it or twist it to your own means
1: right and you're losing an opportunity to to uh shape that presentation itself instead of having them find out when you're not there and you can't answer the questions um this, this brings me back to the mark hoffman controversy that we talked about in carl's podcast uh what happened was mark hoffman forged the white salamander letter the church that said the letter itself said Joseph Smith got his revelations from a white salamander, right? Yeah. Well, if this is true, Mormonism is a total farce, right? <laughs> so what does the church nuts. do? They first pay BYU professors to authenticate it. The professors do; they say this is authentic. Um, so the forgery apparently was was pretty good. Uh, and so what do they do? They pay Mark Hoffman to purchase it. Do they release it? No, they hide it in the vault. The only reason we know is because Mark Hoffman himself couldn't stand that his work doesn't see the light of day. And so he leaked it out to the press, and the press put pressure on the Mormon church to release the document, which they finally did. But their initial impulse was to pay a ton of money and hide it away. So does that tell you that Gordon B. Hinckley, who was involved in the transaction and later became prophet of the church – really believes in Mormonism, or is he more interested in maintaining his position of power and authority?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty easy to answer here. And I mean, that that's the goddamn truth of it, and you approach to anybody who's completely brainwashed by this bullshit, and they will completely ignore the fact that the church leaders are hiding things, and they will blatantly tell you, you know what, they are closer to God than I am, and therefore... They know what is best. They are doing God's will. And that is the big problem with religious people all around is open your fucking minds and actually consider something for yourselves rather than allowing these dipshits who are willing to hide everything and twist everything to their own means and you just accept it. My first question
1: to Gordon B. Hinckley as a believing Mormon would be, why in the fuck would you have to pay a BYU professor to authenticate this shit? Why don't you just get down on your knees and pray to God? Don't you have a fucking line to God as a goddamn apostle? Don't you have keys of the priesthood? Don't you have the power of fucking discernment? Jesus Christ, paying people to authenticate it.
0: Yeah, well... Oh my God. Once again, it comes down to the fact that all we've seen in the LDS church and in any other church where people are claiming to be prophets is they prove once and again that they don't have any power, otherwise... They wouldn't have the goddamn lightning rods on top of their churches.
1: All right. I think that will just about do it for this episode. We are going to continue uh, with early Christian heresies, and we'll get into Layton's Wikipedia research
0: uh, next week. Well, that's my only source. Thanks.